Chapter Five of Shorty McCabe by Sewell Ford. This LibriVox recordings in the public domain. It was that little excursion with Mister Gordon that put me up to sending over to Williamsburg after Swifty Joe Gallagher and signing him as my first assistant. Thinks I, if I'm liable to go strolling off like that any more, I've got to have someone that'll keep the joint open while I'm gone. I didn't pick Swifty for his looks nor for his mammoth intellect. But he's as straight as a string, and he'll mind like a set of dog. Well, say, it was lucky I got him just as I did. I hadn't much more'n broke him in before I runs up against this new one. Understand, I ain't no fad chaser. I don't pine for the sportin' extra life with a new red ink stunt for every leaf on the calendar pad. I got me studio here, and me real money regulars that keep the shop runnin'. And a few of the boys to drop round now and then, so I'm willing to let it go at that. Course though I ain't no side stepper, I takes what's comin' and tries to look pleasant. But this little hot foot act with Raja and Pinkney had me dizzy for a few rounds, sure as ever, and I wouldn't thought it of Pinkney. Why, when he first shows up here, I says to myself, "Next floor, Reginald, for the manicure." He was one of that kind, slim, white-livered, featherweight style of chap. Looks like he'd been training on Welch rabbits and Egyptian cigarettes at the club for about a year. Is this Professor McCabe? Says he. You win, says I. What'll it be? Me class in crochet ain't begun yet. He kind of looks me over steady-like, and then he passes out a card which says how he was Lionel Pinckney Ogden Bruce. Do I have my choice? Says I. Cause if I do, I nips in the Pinkney. It's cute. Well, Pinkney, what's doing? He drapes himself on a chair, gets his little silver-headed stick balanced just so between his knees, pulls his trousers up to high watermark, and takes an inventory of me from the mat up. And say, when he got through, I felt as though he knew it all from how much I'd weigh in at. To where I had my laundry done, yes, Pinkney had a full set of eyes. They were black, not just ordinary black, seems a hole in a hat, but shiny and sparkling like patent leathers in the sun. If it hadn't been for them eyes, you might have thought he was one of the eight-day kind that was just about to run down. I ought to have got next to Pinkney's model just by his lamps, but I didn't. I'm learning though, and if I last long enough, I'll be a wise guy some day. Well, when Pinkney finishes the census of me, he says, "Professor, I wish to take a private course or whatever you call it. I would like to engage your exclusive services for about three weeks." Chick chick says I, things like that come high, young man. Pinkney digs up a sweet little checkbook, unlimbers a fountain pen, and asks. How much, please? Seeing as this is the slack season with me, I'll make it fifty per," says I. "Hour or day?" says he. Maybe I was breathing a bit hard, but I says careless like, "Oh, call it fifty a day in expenses." Business with a pen. That's for the first week," says Pinkney, and I see he'd reckon in Sunday and all. When can you come on?" says I. "I'll begin now if you don't mind," says he. Then it was up to me, so I goes to work. Inside of ten minutes, I had a fair notion of how Pinkney was put up, 
He wasn't as skimpy as he looked from the outside, but I saw that it wouldn't be safe to try the mitts. I might forget and put a little steam into the punch. Then it would be a case of sweeping up the pieces. Hold that out, says I, chucking him the shot bag. He put it out, but all there was in him was bracing that arm. What you need, says I, is a little easy track work in the open, plenty of cold water before breakfast, and a sleep in ten-hour doses. I couldn't sleep five hours at a stretch, much less ten, says he. We'll take something for that, says I. We gets together a couple of suits of running togs, sweaters, towels, and things, and goes downstairs where Pinckney has a big plum-colored homicide wagon waiting for him. Tell Goggles to point for Jerome Avenue, says I. There's a track out there we can use. On the way up, Pinckney lets loose a hint or two that gives me an outline map of his particular case. He hadn't been hitting up any real paresis pace, so far as I can make out. He'd just been trying to keep even with the coupons and dividends that the old man had left him, burning it as it came in, and he'd run out of matches. Guess there was a bunch of millinery somewhere in the background, too, for he was anxious about how he'd feel around horse show time. Maybe Pinckney had made his plans to be more or less agreeable about then, but when he got a kinescope picture of himself in a sanitarium, he had a scare thrown into him. Next, someone gives him a tip on the physical culture studio, and he pikes for Shorty McCabe. Well, I've trained a good many kinds, but I never tried to pump red corpuscles into an amateur Romeo before. There was the 350, though, and I sails in. Head up now, elbows in, weight on your toes, and we're off in the bunch, says I. Steady there, take it easy. This ain't no hundred-yard sprint. This is a mile performance. There, that's better. Dog trot it to three-quarters, and if your cork ain't pulled by then, you can spur it under the wire. But Pinckney had lost all his ambition before we got half round. At the finish, he was breathing more air than his wind tanks had known in months. Now for the second lap, says I. What? Around that fence again, says Pinckney. Why, I saw all there was to see last time. Can't we try a new one? Do you think mile tracks come in clusters, says I? Why not just run up the road, asks Pinckney. The road it is, says I. We fixed it up that Goggles was to follow along in the goose cart and honk honk the quarters to us as he read them on his speed clock. We were three miles nearer Albany when we quit, and Pinckney was leaking like a squeezed sponge. Throw her wide open and pull up at the nearest roadhouse, says I to Goggles. He found one before I had got all the wraps on Pinckney, and in no time at all we were under the shower. There was less of that marble slab look about Pinckney when he began to harness up again. He thought he could eat a little something, too. I stood over the block while the man cut that three-inch hunk from the top of the round, and then I made a mortal enemy of the cook by juggling the broiler myself. But Pinckney did more than nibble. After that, he wanted to turn in sleep. I had to lift him out at 4 g.m. The water cure woke him, though. He tried to beg off the last few glasses, but I made him down them. Then we starts toward Boston, goggles behind, and Pinkney discovers the first sunrise he's seen for years. Well, that's the way we went perambulating up into the pie belt. 
First we'd jog a few miles, and then hop aboard the whiz wagon and spurt for running water. We didn't travel on any schedule or try to make any dates. Half the time we didn't know where we were and didn't care. When bathtubs got scarce, we hunted for a pond or a creek in the woods. In one of the side hampers on the car, I found a quick lunch outfit, so I gets me a broiler, lays on a round of steak and rye bread, and twice a day I does the hobo act over a roadside fire. That tickled Pickney to death. Nights, we'd strike any place where they had beds to let. Pickney didn't punch the mattress or toin up his nose at the quilt patterns. When it came dark, he was glad enough to crawl anywhere. Now this was all to the good, Never quite saw so much picnic weather rattle out of the box all at one throw, and the work didn't break your back. Why, it was like being laid off for a vacation on double pay, until Raja butted in and began to mix things. We'd pulled into some little town or other up in Connecticut soon after sunup, looking for soft-boiled eggs, when a couple of real gents in last-year Ulsters pipes us off and saunters up to the car. They spots Pickney for the cash carrier and makes the play at him. It was a hard luck symposium, of course, but there were more to it than just a panhandle touch. They were all that was left of the Imperial Consolidated Circus and Roman Menagerie. They had lost their top and benches in a fire. Deputy sheriffs had nabbed the wagons and horses. The company was hoofing back to Broadway, and all they had left was Raja. Would the honorable gentleman come and take a squint at Raja? For why? Well, it was this way. They hated to do it, Raja being an old friend, just like one of the family, you might say, but there wasn't anything else. They just got to hawk Raja to put the Imperial Consolidated in commission again. The waste part of it was, these here villagers didn't appreciate what gilt-edged security Raja was but his honor would see that the 250 was nothing at all to lend out for a beggarly week or so on such a magnificent specimen. Why, Raja was as good as real estate or government bonds. As for selling him, 10,000 wouldn't be a temptation. Would the gentleman just step around to the stable? It was then I began to put up the odds on Pinckney. I got a wink from them black eyes of his, and there was the very divil and all in him, with his face as straight as a crowbar. Certainly, says he, we'll be happy to meet Raja. They had him moored to one of the floor beams with an ox chain around his nigh hind foot. He wasn't as big as all outdoors, nor wasn't he a vest pocket edition either. As elephants go, he wouldn't have made the welterweight class by about a ton. He was what I'd call just a handy size, about two bureaus high by one wide. His ivory stoop rails had been sawed off close to his jaw, so he didn't look any more wicked than a folding bed. And his eyes didn't have that shifty wait-till-I-get-loose look they generally does. They were kind of soft, widowy, oh-me-poor-child eyes. He is sad, very sad about all this, says one of the real gents. No, Raja knows almost as much as we do, sir. Pinkney took his word for it. I think I shall accommodate you with that loan, says he. Come into the hotel. Say, I didn't think you could go brick Pinkney as easy as that. 
One of the guys wrote out a receipt and Pinckney shoved it into his pocket, handing over a wad of yellowbacks. They didn't lose any time about heading southeast, those two in the Ulsterettes. Then we goes back to have another look at Raja. It's a wonderful thing, Professor, this pride of possession, says Pinckney. Only a few persons in the world own elephants. I am one of them. Even though it is only for a week, and he is miles away, I shall feel that I own Raja, and it will make me glad. Then he winks, so I knows he's just being gay. But Raja didn't seem so gladsome. He was rocking his head back and forth, and just as we gets there, out rose a big tear, about a tumblerful. Can't we do something to choke him up a bit, says I. He seems to take it hard, being hung up on a ticket. There's something the matter with this elephant, says Pinckney, taking a front view of him. He's in pain. See if you can't find a veterinary, Professor. Yes, they said there was a horse doctor knocking around the country somewhere. He worked in the shingle mill by spells, and then again the chair factory or odd jobs. A blonde-haired native turned up, who was sure the doc had gone hog-killing up to the corners. So I goes back to the stable. I found out, says Pinckney. It's toothache. He showed me. Open up, Raja, and let the professor see. Up, up. Raja was accommodating. He unhinged the top half of his face so to give me a private view. We used a box of matches locating that punky grinder. There was a hole in it big enough to drop a pool ball into. Talk about your chamber of horrors. Think what it must be to be as big as that and feel bad all over. I never worked in an open all night painless shop, says I, but I think I could do something for that if I could tap a drug store. Good, says Pinckney. We passed one down the road. They kept grindstones and stove polish and dress patterns there, too, but they had a row of bottles in one corner. Give me a roll of cotton batten and a quart of oil of cloves, says I to the man. He grinned and ripped a little ten-cent bottle of toothache drops off a card. It may feel that way, but you'll find this plenty, says he. You get busy with my order, says I. This ain't my ache. It's Raja's, and Raja's an elephant. Show, says he, and hands over all he had in stock. I went back on the jump. We made a wad half as big as your head, soaked in the clove oil and rammed it down with a nail hammer. It was the fromage, all right. And say, ever see an elephant grin and look tickled and try to say thank you? The way he talked deaf and dumb with his trunk and shook hands with us and patted us on the back was almost as human as the way a man acts when the jury brings in not guilty. Inside of three minutes, Roger was that kinky, he tried to do a double shuffle and nearly wrecked the barn. It made us feel good, too, and we stood around there and threw bouquets at ourselves for what we'd done. Then the cook came out, wanted to know should she keep right on boiling them eggs or take them off, so we remembers about breakfast. Calling for a new deal on the eggs, we sent out word for him to fix up a tub of hot mash for Raja and told the landlord to give our friend the best in the stable. Raja was fetching the bottom of the tub when we went out to say goodbye. He stretched his trunk out to us as we went through the door. We'd climbed into the car and was just getting under way when we hears things smash, 
looks back to see Raja, with a section of his stable floor dragging behind, coming after us on the gallop. Beat it, says I to Goggles, and he was reaching for the speed lever when he sees a town constable with a tin badge like a stove lid pull a brass watch on us. What's the limit? shouts Pinkney. Ten an hour, uh, ten dollars, says he. Here's your ten and costs, says Pinkney, tossing him a sawbuck. Go ahead, Francois. We jumped into that village ordinance at a forty-mile-an-hour clip and would have had Raja hold down in about two minutes, but Pinckney had to take one last look. The poor old mutt had quit after a few jumps. He had squat in the middle of the road, lifted up his trombone frontspiece, and was bellowing out his grief like a calf that had lost its mommer. Pinckney couldn't stand for that for a minute. I say now, we'll have to go back, says he. That whale would haunt me for days if I didn't. So back we goes to Raja, and he almost stands on his head. He's so glad to see us again. We'll just have to slip away without his knowing it next time, says Pinckney. Perhaps he will get over his gratitude in an hour or so. We unhitches Raja from the stable floor and starts back for the hotel. The landlord met us halfway. Don't you bring that critter near my place again, shouts he. Take him away before he tears the house down. And no jollyin' nor green money would change that hayseed's mind. The whole population was with him, too. While we were jawing about it, long comes the town marshal with some kind of injunction warning us to remove Raja, the same being a menace to life and property. There won nothing for it but the sneak. We moves out that boy at half speed, with old Raja padding close behind, his trunk resting affectionately on the tonneau back, and a kind of satisfied right-to-home look in them little eyes of his. Made me feel like a pair of yellow shoes at a dance. But Pinckney seemed to think there was something funny about it. And over the hills and far away the happy princess followed him, as Tennyson puts it, says he. Tennyson was dead onto his job, says I. But when do we annex the steam calliope and the boys in red coats with banners? We ought to have the rest of the grand forenoon parade, or else shake Raja. Oh, perhaps we can find quarters for him in the next town, where he hasn't disgraced himself, says Pinckney. Pinckney hadn't counted on the telephone, though. A posse with shotguns and bench warrants met us a mile out from the next place and shoot us away. They'd heard that Raja was a man-killer, and they had brought along a pound of arsenic to feed him. After they'd been coaxed from behind their barricade, though, and had seen what a gentle, confiding beast Raja really was, they compromised by letting us take the road that led into the next county. This is getting sultry, says I, as we goes on the side track. I'm enjoying it, says Pinckney. Now let's have some road work. Say, you ought to have seen that procession. Voice comes me and Pinckney in running gear, them Raja hoofing along our heels as joyous as a chowder party, and after him goggles with the benzene wagon. Seemed to me I've hoity yarns about how grateful dumb beasts could be to folks that had done em a good turn, but Raja's act made them tales seem like sarsaparilla ads. He was chalk full of gratitude. He was nutty over it. Seemed like he couldn't think of anything else but that wholesale toothache of his and how he got shut of it. He just adopted us on the spot. Whenever we stopped, he'd hang around and look sober, kind of admiring, and we couldn't move a step, but he was there, 
flapping his big ears and swinging his trunk, just as though he was saying, Whoopee, me fellas, you're the real persimmons, you are. Well, we couldn't find the hotel where they'd take us in at night, so we had to bribe a farmer to let us use his spare bedrooms. We tethered Raja to a big apple tree just under our windows to keep him quiet and let him browse on a rosa sharon bush. He only ripped off the rain pipe and trod a flower bed as hard as a paved court. At breakfast, Pinckney remarks, sort of soothing, We might as well enjoy Raja's society while we have it. I suppose the circus men will be after him in a few days. Then he remembers that receipt and pulls it out. I could see something was queer by the way he screwed up his mouth. He tossed the paper over to me. Say, do you know what them two Ulsterick guys had done? They'd given Pinckney a bill of sale, making over all rights, privileges, and goodwill entire. You're it, says I. So it seems, says Pinckney, but I hardly know whether I've got Raja or Raja's got me. If I owned something I didn't want, says I, seems to me I'd sell it. There must be other come-ons. We will sell em, says Pinckney. Well, we tried. For three or four days we didn't do anything else, and say, when I think of them days they seem like a mince-pie dream. We did our handsomest to make those nutmeggers believe that they needed Raja in their business, that he would be handy to have around the place. But they couldn't see it. We argued with about fifty horny-handed plow-pushers, showing them how Raja could pull more than a string of oxen a block long, and could be let out for stump-digging in summer, or as a snow-plow in winter. We tried liverymen, storekeepers, summer cottages, but the nearest we came to making a sale was to a brewer who had just built a new house with red and yellow fancy woodwork all over the front of it. He thought Raja might make for a lawn ornament and make himself useful as a fountain during dry spells, but when he noticed that Raja didn't have any tusks, he said it was all off. He knew where he could buy a whole cast-iron menagerie with all the frills thrown in at half the price. And we wasn't holding Raja at any swell figure. He was on the bargain counter when the sale began. Every day was a fifty percent clearance with us. We were closing out our line of elephants on account of retiring from business, and Raja was a remnant. But they wouldn't buy. Generally, they threatened to set the dogs on us. It was worse than trying to sell a cargo of fur overcoats in Panama. In time, it began to leak through into our heads that Raja wasn't negotiable. Didn't seem to trouble him any. He was just as glad to be with us at first, followed us around like a pet poodle, and got away with his bale of hay as regular as a Rialto ham fatter raiding a free lunch. Is it a life sentence, Pinckney? says I. Is this twin foster brother act to a mislaid elephant to be a continuous performance? If it is, we'd better hit the circuit regular and draw our dough on salary day. For me, I'm sick of having folks act like we was a quarantine station. Let's anchor Raja to something solid and skidoo. But Pinckney couldn't stand to think of Raja being left to suffer. He was getting kind of sore on the business, just the same. Then he plucks a thought. We wise to a friend of his in Newport to run down to the big circus headquarters and jolly them into sending an elephant trainer up to us. A trainer will know how to coax Raja off, says he, and perhaps he will take him as a gift. It's easy money, says I. But it wasn't. 
that duck in newport sends back a message that covers four sheets of yellow paper telling how glad he was to get track of pinckney again and how he must come down right away oh they wanted pinckney bad it was like the tap of the bell for a twenty-round goal with a referee missing seems that mrs jerry toynbee was trying to pull off one of those backyard affairs that win newspaper space some kind of a fool amateur circus and they got to have pinckney there to manage it or the thing would flush. As for the elephant trainer, he'd forgot that. By Jove, says Pinckney, real sassy-like. That's drawn it mild, says I. Would you like the loan of a few able-bodied cusswades? But I have an idea, says Pinckney. Handcuff it, says I. It's a case of breaking and entering. But he didn't have so much loft room to let, after all. His first move was to hunt up a railroad station and charter a box car. We coppice it with hay, has a man knock together a couple of high bunks in one end, and throws in some new horse blankets. Now, says Pinckney, you and I and Raja will start for Newport on the night freight. Have you asked Raja? says I. But Raja knew all about riding in box cars. He walked up the plank after us just like we was a pair of Noahs. Goggles was sent off over the road with the cart by all his lonesome. I've traveled a good deal with real sports, and once I came back from St. Louis with the delegates to the National Convention, but this was my first trip in an animal car. It wasn't so bad, though, and it was all over by daylight next morning. There wasn't anyone in sight but milkmen and baker's boys as we drove down Bellevue Avenue, with Raja gripping the rear axle of our cab. I don't know how he felt about buttoning the Newport Society at that time of day, but I looked for a cop to pinch us as second story men. We fetches up to the swellest kind of ranch you ever saw, iron gates to it like a storage warehouse, and behind that, trees and bushes and lawn, like a slice out of Central Park. Pinckney wakes up the lodgekeeper, and after he lets down the bars, we pikes around to the stable. It looked more like an Episcopal church than a stable, and we didn't find any horses inside anyway, only seven different kinds of gasoline carts. The stable hands all seemed to know Pinckney and to be proud of it, but they shied some at Raja and me. This is part of a little affair I'm managing for Mrs. Toynbee, says Pinckney. Professor McCabe and Raja will stay here for a day or two, strictly incognito, you know. What Pinckney says seems to be rules and regulations there, so Raja and I got the glad hand after that. And for a stable visit, it was the best that ever happened. I've stopped at lots of two-dollar houses that would have looked like Bowery lodgings alongside of that stable, and one of the boys thought he could handle the mitts some, Yes, that incog business wasn't so worse after fifty per. All this time, Pinckney was as busy as the man at the ticket window, only dropping in once or twice after dark to see if Raja was staying good. The show was being knocked into shape, and Pinckney was master of ceremonies. I knew he was going to wake Raja in somehow, but he didn't have any time to put me next, and I never tumbled until he sprung the trick. About the third day, things began to hum around the Toynbee place. A gang of tent men came with a round top and put it up. They strung a lot of sideshow banners, too, and built lemonade stands in the shrubbery. If it hadn't been for the Johnny boys in hot clothes strolling around, you'd thought a real one-ring wagon show had struck town. But say, 
that bunch of clowns and bum bareback riders had papas who could have given him a four-paw outfit every birthday. Early the next morning, I got the tip from Pinckney to sneak Raja out of the stable and over into the dressing tent. The way that old chap's eyes glistened when he saw the banners and things was a wonder. He sure did know a heap, that Raja. He was excited and anxious as a new chorus girl at a fall opening, but when I gave him the word, he held himself in. Just before the grand entry, I got a peek at the house, and it was a swell mob, same folks that you'll see at the horse show, only there wasn't no dollar head push to rubber at em, as they won on an exhibition. They was just out for fun, and I guess they know how to have it, seeing as that's their steady job. Number four on the program was put down as Mr. Lionel Pinckney Ogden Bruce with his wonderfully lifelike elephant Raja. I heard the Baca give his song and dance about the act, and he got a great hand. Then Pinckney goes on and the crowd howls. You see, he'd had a loose canvas suit like pajamas made for Raja and stuffed it out with straw. It was painted to look something like elephant hide, but some of the straw had been left sticking through the seams. With Raja sewed inside of this, he looked like a rank imitation of himself. Fake, fake, they yells at him as they showed up. Who's playing the hind legs, Lionel? And a lot of things like that. They threw peanuts and apples at Raja and generally enjoyed themselves. Then all of a sudden, Pinkney pulls the puckering string, yanks off the padding, and out walks old Raja as chipper as Billy Jerome. Fetch him? Well, say, you've seen a gang of school kids when the sleight-of-hand man makes a pass over the eggs in the hat and pulls out a live rabbit? These folks acted the same way. They howled, they hee-hawed, they jumped up and down on the seats. They'd been looking for the same old elephant with two men inside, the good old chestnut that they'd been trying to laugh over for years. And when this Filipino was sprung on them, they were as tickled as a baby with a jack-in-the-box. It wouldn't have got more than a laugh out of a crowd of everyday folks, but that swell mob just went wild over it. It was a new stunt, done special for them by one of their own crowd. Was Pickney it? Why, he was the whole show. They kept him and Raja in the ring for half an hour, and they let loose every time Raja lifted his trunk or napped his ears. When he got him quiet, Pickney made a speech. He said he was happy to say that the Grand Door Prize, as announced on the handbills, had been drawn by Mrs. Jeremiah Toynbee, and that Raja was the prize. Would she take it with her or have it sent? You've heard of Mrs. Jerry. She's a real sport, she is. She's the one that stirred up all that fuss by taking a tame panther down to Bailey's Beach with her. And Mrs. Jerry wasn't going back on her reputation or missing any two-page ads in the papers. You may send him, please, says Mrs. Jerry. Maybe they thought that was all a part of Pickney's fake. They didn't know how hard we tried to unload Raja. We didn't do any lingering around. While the show was going on, we sneaks out of the back of the tent with Raja and crossed to the stable. The rest was easy. He'd got so used to seeing me there that I reckon he'd sized it up for my regular hangout, so when we ties him up fast and slides out easy one at a time, he never mistrusts. Professor, says Pinckney, it seems to me that this is an excellent opportunity for us to go away. 
It is all of that, says I, and let's make it a quick shift. We did. Goggles shook us up some on the way down, but we hit Broadway in time for breakfast. End of chapter 5